listening to the voice of Howard Stern. Hello, you rotten little bloodsucker. This is Alice Cooper. Hey, this is Justin from NSYNC. This is Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, hey, baby. Hellers the king. Oh. Hi, this is Jack. Just back up from the border for a short visit. You know what I'm talking about, pal? Welcome to another edition of The Horse's Mouth. You're in The Horse's Mouth, and my name is John Teague. So today on the show, I had none other than Christian Loberger. Um, I hadn't seen Christian uh, for 25 years, we worked out. Um, you know, we went to school together, uh, and, you know, that's how it goes. You just, everyone goes their way. Anyway, I heard some interesting, um, you know, tidbits on Loeb's and I just sort of, I reached out to him because he, he's actually grew up in Papua New Guinea and doesn't spend a lot of time in Australia. Um, and he's doing a lot of interesting things with his uh, his life. And I, I sort of reached out to him and said, next time you're in Melbourne, maybe we should get together and have a chat. And uh, and he said, yeah, that'd be awesome. So, so we got together and we had that chat and, um, you know, he's really, uh, he's doing amazing things. He's He's um, got a, a solar company called Astra Solar. So if you're interested in, um, you know, I don't know, hooking the hooking your house or business up, um, get on the website Astra Solar Limited, um, and and they're doing really great things with alternative power sources. So and that, and you know, I think that this is just the way of the future. It's a it's a great way of the future, a cleaner way of the future. Uh, he really shone some light on some areas that I just fuck I just don't know much about you know where we get our energy and you know the facts on coal and um look it's just it's a hot topic right now and 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 Loeb's is right at the forefront of it all uh so I hope you have uh I hope you enjoyed my chat with Christian um what else what else <sighs> I mean, I I don't want to talk about, it, but you know, I lost a friend. I don't even know if you call it a friend, but someone I knew, and um, it's just left me. Uh, you know, like, look, it doesn't take me much to to kick off into a not a spiral, but like uh, a place of uh, thinking about our own mortality and journey and um, what's it all about? Because you know, someone disappears and. Like people disappear all the time, and uh, you just sort of go, "Well, fuck, what's uh, what's it all about?" You know? Um, yeah, I don't want to bang on about that too much, but look, it's been a weird start to the year, it really has. Like with the fires, and luckily we haven't had too many where I'm. We haven't had any really in this little zone, but we've certainly been covered in smoke now for days and it's uh, it's like a friend of mine described it the other day as like a, a nuclear winter it's sort of um eerie and you know but that eerie is better than fucking fiery like you know like plenty of people have lost their houses and it's been a real fucking shit to start to the 2020 but uh sometimes when things start badly i really think that um like uh you know you can they quite often turn out good it's been in my experience with a lot of things. Sometimes it starts rough and I'm like, oh, this is a real bad omen. Uh, and then, you know, like uh, you end up on the other side of that. So I'm really hoping that that uh, is the trajectory for everyone that's had a rough start to 2020. Um, yeah, a uh, little analogy is like sometimes you know, I can go out and have a really good first half of my surf and the second half is shit or uh, vice versa. My first half is fucked and then I redeem it. 
you know. So and these these patterns happen all all the way through. You know, um, I'm sure people have that with all sorts of things. Golf, good first uh, first nine, shit back nine. Yeah, I don't fucking know, but you can put it into whatever context you want. But I mean, it's these life's always trending, man. Anyway, um, I hope you're well. I do hope you're well, uh, and I hope you enjoy my chat with Christian, and I hope you learn a little bit more about uh, like energy. Definitely on the back end, that's where he plays on the uh, talks about the energy, um, and I find that stuff fascinating. Anyway, um, I'll see you on the other side. You think this is, is interesting? Wow! Wait till you hear two hours of crap. A complete and total barfarama. It was definitely a lot of anti scamo there. I saw a lot of uh, very creative billboards, actually, uh, very offensive ones, <laughs> giving some some very intimate advice to the prime minister. Um, and there was obviously everyone's there because they're concerned about climate change, and I think uh, it's difficult for some people to articulate that. So. ScoMo makes a handy and probably a culpable scapegoat for people to sort of take out their anxiety on. And so I, I find it hard. But what do you mean when you say that people find it hard to articulate? It's a real look, climate change is a really complicated thing to get your head around. Um, it's been described as, as a hyper object. So a hyper object is something that is it's really too big and too complicated for a single person to understand, to get the head around. So, I mean, you could describe the, the international monetary system as a hyper-object. Um, the US uh, presidential elections, they're a hyper-object. There's just so many things and so many moving parts that it's really impossible and, and you know, to, for one single person to claim, oh, yeah, I understand this thing. So that obviously means not you, not I, none of those protesters, we really are capable of understanding all of the huge implications of climate change. So uh, we look for ways to simplify it, to break it down into stuff we can understand. And, you know, putting it at the feet of the Prime Minister, the person who's supposed to lead us through this difficult climate period, I think is, you know, a reasonable way of dealing with that. I love this word, hyper... Hyper object. Hyper object. Yeah. <laughs> I could put that into lots of parts of my life. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, there are a few around. But, yeah, hyper... It is because, you know, like, I, I, it's undoubtable that we're heating up. It's undoubtable that if we keep going with population growth and burning fossil fuels, we're going to end up with a resource-depleted, overpopulated earth which doesn't look pretty i just don't see that in a pretty picture and so whether that is the main route or not we have to change Mm -hmm. and it's undeniable that we are getting these fucking freaky hot days out of the blue disappear like the weather's shifting Mm. um but and then you know you go well we're heating up and then you go well this the earth is secular it's always in cycles and um, we're freezing and unfreezing and, you know, all the time. So is this just a part of a, a reoccurring pattern? And I'm not saying it's either one or the other. I don't fucking know. It's just... I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss with it all. Well, my, my understanding is you're right. There is a... The Earth does go through patterns, but from what the climatologists and the paleo paleoclimatologists have 
been saying, my understanding, is that we're actually in a cooling cycle. So there should be a very faint cooling trend going on right now. Temperatures should be dropping or stabilising, but definitely not going up. Uh, so what we're seeing from the observed temperature records is is not just climbing more than it should, but it's actually climbing even in a, a cooling cycle. So there's probably more, more warming going on than we've even accounted for. So hold on. If we're in a cooling cycle, does that mean we're in the early phases of an ice age? Potentially, but that might not happen for you know thousands of years, or it might just be cooling by half a degree or a quarter of a degree, and 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 not necessarily going into the deep freeze. Um, I mean, I think it's 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 hard to extrapolate these things out into the future and and see you know what is going to be like in a fifty or a hundred, two hundred years. But uh, honestly, from what they're saying, it, it it's we should be cooling, not not warming. We're going in the wrong direction. And exactly what the speed is and the motivation for that is, is not really clear or, you know, it's been worked on. But the, the direction is undeniable and the historic evidence says that it should be cooling, not, not warming. Hold on. I know, but my head hurts when you say this. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, everyone's saying it's heating. It is heating. Uh, but but technically we should be cooling. Yeah. So based on, you know, these... So these what, what are you trying to tell me? It's broken? Well, I mean, the climate is broken. I think that's the problem. Um, but no, when, when we look and we try and piece back, piece together historic climate patterns and trends, and like you say, there are these uh, cycles that the, the Earth goes through as it spins around the sun, the orbits change slightly, and there's different sort of cosmic influences on the Earth that have a, a subtle but noticeable effect on, on global temperatures. Okay, can I ask a question? You mm. might know of this a friend that always talks about solar flares from the sun and mm. that having influence on temperatures. Oh, look, I'm not an astrophysicist, but um, my <laughs> you put me in really deep here. Um, my understanding is solar flares are a thing, yeah, um, but they have more to do with magnetic radiation than thermal radiation, so they wouldn't necessarily have a big impact on temperatures. That's that's sort of my basic understanding. Uh, but uh, yeah. They certainly haven't been proposed as a, a major climate influence by anyone that I can sort of name. Yeah, okay. Just just want to throw that into the... Mm. While well, we're out here on a limb. Mm. Um, and, okay, so what do you think the... Do you think it was a successful protest? I didn't know, but they happened all over the world yesterday as well. Um, I knew they were in a bunch of different places in Australia. Um, I'd, but I think this Friday's for future thing is it's like a, a global phenomenon now with Greta Thunberg. She started this whole let's protest on Fridays for the climate. So I think any decent climate protest these days has to be on a Friday. So this Friday, today being Saturday, yesterday was Friday. Yeah. There's another one this Friday. Uh, well... I don't know about Melbourne. Uh, I was in a Facebook group for this climate protest thing just to get updates, and they they have proposed another protest, maybe not this Friday, but pretty soon, like within a month, I think. Yeah, I don't think you can do them every week. Yeah, that would be a bit of a stretch. Yeah. yeah. Um, and ScoMo wants to ban or is hedging towards looking like he wants to ban protesting. Mm. 
Yeah. So there was some or protesting under a cert for a certain thing. Well, yeah, I, I don't think fucking know. He wants to. The, the understanding is they want to ban secondary boycotts, which is where you don't boycott the guys that build. Well, you don't boycott the Adani mine. You boycott the engineering firm or the trucking firm or the catering firm that serves the Adani mine. So that's uh, Morrison is trying to somehow rule that illegal or un, I'm not sure how he could even do that because you're basically talking about taking away people's right to choose. Uh, and also there has been some draft legislation in Tasmania <clears throat> that has uh, made protesting for the forests there illegal in some way if you obstruct someone doing their job i think you can be arrested look i'm not sure of the whole laws of it all but i know it is it's a strong step in the direction of making protests more difficult if not illegal yeah um that's fucked just from the point of view of we're losing our rights as as a human you know, and mm. and if we can't stand up and say we disagree with certain things, then we're being dictated to. Yeah, well, and I think um, the big kind of problem with how this relates to climate change is that everyone has believed, uh, you know, climate change is a big problem, but eventually uh, we will get everyone in society to understand how bad it is and then we will sort of come together in unity and peace and all trying to achieve the same goal and we will fix climate change. But, you know, the counterpoint to that is that we're not really going to understand it. The uh, effects of climate change are going to get worse. The fires are going to bank people homeless. They're going to crush the economy. Uh, they're going to do all these kind of negative things. And the response is going to be, instead of coming together, that the government is going to get stricter. They're going to you know, deal with these uh, economic people, uh, economic uh, factors driving homelessness and crime by more and stricter laws, and they're not going to look at the actual causes of it. So I think we're at a risk, yeah, definitely of, of going to less freedom, more authoritarian, less democratic principles. And I think uh, and we could just about sleepwalk into it. Well, do you know what I read this morning, um, just having a peruse of the old Facebook, and I'm part of the Torquay Community Notice Board, and sometimes I wish I wasn't. But I looked at it and saw that yesterday, I think they had banned people from going to the beach. There was a beach ban, not a swimming ban, but a beach ban. And I, I, I couldn't get to the bottom of it, some people were saying, because the winds were too strong, it was dangerous. Um, yeah, some people were writing in... Sharkies, uh, I don't know. There was a, no, there wasn't a concise answer there, but I'll, I need to get to the bottom of this because you can't ban people from going to a beach. I mean, that's. I thought, as an Australian, that it's every, everyone's right to be at the beach. Well, <laughs> fucking all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and collecting the doll. Yeah. Um. <laughs> uh, look, um, maybe they banned it for safety reasons because of excess wind, but I mean. How do you enforce that? Well, where are the legalities? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. All right, let's go. Um, <coughs> what was some of your earliest memories, Christian Loberger? Well, John, you know, I'm not from Australia originally. I was born and, and raised in Papua New Guinea. So I, uh, I guess, you know, earliest memories were of the tropics, you know, the hot sort of very thick sort of uh, we didn't live in the rainforest but definitely we had 
very green and, and verdant surroundings and um, incredible heat, humidity, um, and growing up on the beach as well, actually. So uh, we used to go to the beach every weekend. My dad had a boat. We'd go sailing to islands and, you know, I learnt to swim and do all sorts of things on these white sandy beaches. So this is, were you in or out of Port Moresby? Uh, in Port Moresby. Yeah. You know, some nice beaches in Port Moresby and surrounding. Yeah, I bet. Mm. Um, and I know nowadays that people talk about it, you've got to be careful. I've never been to Papua New Guinea and I hear there's amazing waves and I really want to come. But um, people are also saying it's a very volatile area and you've got to really be careful. Did you feel that growing up? Or yeah, has it changed? I think, you know, I, I grew up in that environment where there you have to be mindful of security you, uh, you do take precautions like you have a big fence around your house and you always keep the door locked and um, just generally being more aware when you're, you're in public and, and you're in tra- transit and stuff uh, I, I wouldn't say it's a really high risk place I think it's um, it's very poor so there's a lot of poverty there and this leads to social problems like you know crime and homelessness and, and child poverty so these are definitely bad impacts, but for someone like me, who's a relatively privileged, you know, from a good family, brought up with going to good schools, that wasn't something that I had the same, faced the same problems as, say, someone from, from a less advantaged community. Yeah. Yeah. And so what were, if you don't mind me asking, what were your parents up to in those days? So my father was uh, is an engineer. He moved to Papua New Guinea in the sixties, as did my mother. She was worked in healthcare. She was a nurse, then later on a hospital administrator. Uh, but they moved to Papua New Guinea when it was part of Australia. Sorry, so, part, were they they moved there together or no, they, they met? Moved, they moved there separately. They met there. Oh, how romantic! <coughs> Good yes. story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah story. Um, yeah, but when they moved there, it was part of Australia. It was a territory like the ACT or NT is now. What? Yeah. I didn't know this. Oh, yeah, for sure, man. It was uh, up until 1975, it was part of Australia. So you'd be an Aussie citizen if you lived and worked there. Oh, my God. I had no idea. That. What? What? Re- why they relinquish it? Well, in the 70s, there was a big push around the world for decolonisation. Um and in effect, uh, Papua New Guinea was, was functioning more or less as a colony of Australia. Um, Gough Whitlam was the PM of Australia at the time, and you know he was really you know wanted to get this sort of off off the books. Um, didn't want to be the last colonial power in the world when there was such a global trend against it, and there was a, a strong push from within New Guinea also to for independence and some sort of self determination and ability to to, to chart, chart our own course. And so your parents fell in love with Papua New Guinea. Yeah. And each other. (laughs) (laughs) And didn't... So was there a push for people to leave who were living there from Australia once it was given back to the Papua New Guinea people or...? There wasn't a push. Like, I mean, there was a... Maybe describe it more accurately as a pull from Australia. Like, um, there was a lot of uncertainty amongst uh, Australians and, and foreigners who'd lived there at the time as to how this this transition to independence would go. And a lot of people kind of got a bit worried and they decided to leave. But, uh, you know, just as many thought they'd stay and, and, and tough it out or try it out. And my parents were some of them and managed to stay and make a good go of it. 
I mean, I don't know. I just, I think romantically it would be pretty awesome to be able to call Papua New Guinea home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I do call it home. Yeah. 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 I think that's awesome. Yeah. And um, so growing up, you, is tropical coconuts. I'm getting lots of, you know, no coconuts. We had a couple of coconut trees in our yeah. garden. So yeah. you would know never to park under them. Otherwise they might crack the windscreen of your car. How many, they kill more people than what, how many a year? They kill <laughs> oh, a lot of people falling yeah. coconuts. Falling coconuts and people falling out of coconut trees, I think is the two uh, main risks. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. And so primary school? Uh, I went to Ella Beach International Primary School just down the road from where I lived. So I would walk there every morning, take me about 20 minutes, if that. Um, You'd walk? Yeah. So it was safe as houses then? Yeah, it was safe enough for a kid walking to school. Yeah. Yeah. Could you do the same walk today? Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, I live in a fairly, still live in a fairly safe part of town where, um, yeah, I'd be comfortable doing that today. So there's a real misconception... um, I feel that, I don't know, in my mind through media, I, I always just imagine Papua New Guinea to be this super dangerous place. and It does get a rap and, you know, there are dangers there. But, uh, I mean, I think if you're a Papua New Guinean woman, your danger is very, very high. In fact, women in general do get a pretty tough time in Papua New Guinea. It's, it's, there are a lot of gender issues there that need to be addressed. But... Um, at the same time, if you if you live in fairly you know, privileged sort of existence, and you know, say you work for a foreign company, and then you can afford the security and the precautions, and you know this and that, I think it's fairly safe. People there aren't inherently bad or criminal or uh, aggressive towards outsiders. Uh, they're quite friendly, but it's just you know, it's a matter of poverty and uh, and the social issues that come with that. Mm. And um, are you friends with some people that you still went to primary school with? Yeah, yeah, quite a few. Um, I wouldn't say a few, but uh, yeah, definitely some. Uh, mostly reconnected through Facebook. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's a few still kicking around that, that I know from the early days. But yeah. yeah. Do you ever um, see Mola? Adam Mola. He was on a f- he's a he's an airline pilot now. So this was a funny story. <clears throat> I was there with my girlfriend earlier last year i think it was easter 2019 and we were on a flight to um from port moresby to rabau which is one of the outlying islands and it was horrible weather absolutely bucketing down it's one of these real tropical rainpours um and we were coming into the airstrip and pilot came on said look ladies and gentlemen i'm sorry but uh we're going to be held in a holding pattern here. Um, it's not enough good weather for us to get a window through the clouds to land, so uh, we're just going to wait until we get a chance. Anyway, it goes to land and we get in and then, you know, it's just total whiteout. You can't see anything. It's the brain is hitting the windows and we're dropping, dropping, dropping and then all of a sudden we feel the engines kick in, power picks up and we're climbing again oh yeah, so yeah. Do old we're not going to do this the old, yeah. Uh, yeah let's let's have a look maybe not <laughs> <laughs> so anyway we we went up doing that three times <laughs> coming in touch and go couldn't quite see no nah, not not this time yeah and on the fourth attempt he landed us and as we were coming out of the um plane uh, everyone's like oh you know thank god uh, he came on, and, or I think one of the flight attendants came on and says, yeah, you, your captain today was uh, Captain Adam Moller. So I was like, wow. 
Did you go and, and say good day? Uh, no, I didn't. I we we had to go out to the terminal and then they had to turn it around. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Was that the first time that you heard his name for a long time? <laughs> I haven't seen Adam maybe six, seven years ago. I, I bumped into him in the supermarket and we had a very quick chat. He told me he was a helicopter pilot. Mm. Um, so obviously he's moved up to jets now because that's, I think we're on a jet or maybe it was a Dash 8. Yeah, but it was a big, bigger than a helicopter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, wow. That's cool. That yeah. is cool. You know, a molar uh, introduced me to NWA. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> straight, out of, straight out of cryo. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Loved it. <laughs> um, okay. So, and then obviously you got sent from, did you want to go to boarding school? Uh, look, when I was in grade six, it was a situation where... Most of my friends are also going to boarding school. Yeah, is that um, because the edu- the secondary education is? Yeah, I mean, I think there is the secondary education in the high school in Papua New Guinea is fine, but I think most people, if they had the option, they would try and <clears throat> get their kids in an Australian school just to try and connect with you know the people and the culture maybe a bit better. And perhaps, you know, slightly better educational options as well. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, broaden the, the, the horizon mm. a little bit. Mm. Um, I know, yeah, anyway, I was sent because I was getting in a bit of trouble. I was always supposed to go to school, away to school, but um, I went early. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, when did you start boarding, was it? Second, second term, year eight. Yeah, right. Was that, that was a cryo, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So that's I when fucking we fucking hated it. That's when we would have met. Yeah. 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 And um and so did you when you were at school, did you get sent away? Did you feel did you enjoy it? Did you feel homeschooled? Like what was your experience no, with that? Not really. I mean, I, I thought it was an interesting experience. I didn't feel particularly homesick, but I didn't really feel at home either at boarding school, which I guess is probably doesn't make me unusual. Uh, but it was it was weird, you know. I kind of felt like I was in a foreign culture, and I was learning a whole heap of new things and trying to understand how things worked and people behaved. And so it took me a while to get my head around. Mm. Yeah, I don't think I felt comfortable till sort of year eleven or twelve. Mm. But I think that also, you know, at that age, who 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 is a teenager that feels comfortable? You know? No, that's completely right. Yeah, yeah totally, totally. Um, and so, how did you like? I, I can. And how did you go academically through school? Look, I was always fairly smart, but very poor uh, uh, work work applications. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did okay in my VCE, um, not great, but not terrible. I uh, I remember I, I I was doing fairly poorly in in I think it was year eleven or year twelve geography. And then I just went into the exam and I absolutely smashed the exam and it kind of pulled my grades out of the hole they were in. Um, but, it, yeah, perhaps I could have done better if I studied more. And Did you surprise yourself? Or uh, did you just sort of no. apply yourself? I think, I think 
I wasn't surprised that I did well in the exams. I was a bit disappointed that all of my assignments and, and you know essays and stuff hadn't done better. But I mean, I knew I knew the reason why. Mm. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I came out with my ex- expectations met. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that sounds fair. Mm. And so, did you uh, uh, did you go straight to uni? Did you take time off to go home? I did what go straight happened? to uni, and that was kind of that was sort of my parents' initiative, which I think was probably the right outcome at the time that it was probably the right choice but didn't really have the the best outcome you know I sort of messed around in my first year of uni you know just drinking concentrating on sport you know not you know missing lectures and stuff were you playing you're playing rugby playing rugby yeah yeah playing a lot of rugby so I went to University of Tasmania did you uh, yeah oh, yeah yeah and I, I went straight into the local club there and then I went up in the state under 18s, then one up in the state senior side, and and just you know, I loved rugby. Mate, they embraced you down there. They did, they did. So, <clears throat> and that was kind of a. It was I was in a, a residential college there, so it was there was a lot of similarities to boarding school. Um, everyone's living together, not in dorms. We had our own rooms, but we would eat together. We had a common room where we'd gather. Uh, it's basically was boarding school with a drinking problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which was boarding school. <laughs> <laughs> exactly the same. You were well groomed for it. Yeah. Um, awesome. So, what were you studying? I studied arts. So, with a major in poli and administration. So what? Arts. Yeah, no, but that be po- political science. Oh, and, political science. Yeah, political science and admin. But I, I, I was really focusing on Asian studies. Yeah. So I did a lot of. Uh, research into they were the Asian tigers then at the moment, which um, was this these these booming economies in Southeast Asia, which is like Malaysia, Korea, I think Thailand, maybe Singapore and Indonesia. I can't remember all of them, but there's about half a dozen countries that were all, you know, on the up, and and it was sort of an economic and social phenomenon that uh, it was interesting to study at the time. And did you have like I don't know, but did you pick that with a career in mind, or you, I don't, I'm not? No, I had no idea really how my career would go, and it's only sort of, I guess, in the last four or five years. So you know, I'm, I'm 43 now. Probably only since sort of my early mid 30s, I've really known. Okay, this is maybe what I can be doing and what I can be good at. I, I had no idea when I was in my 20s or earlier. <laughs> Fuck right. Yeah. <laughs> It all comes to us at different times. <laughs> totally, totally, and mm. still figuring it out. And that's I was talking to. I've had this conversation a lot lately, but like I think I even spoke to you on the phone about it. Like, mm. you think you're going to grow up? That's right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. I mean, you do obviously. Like you learn shit along the way, but inherently you don't really change. Like you think. I thought I'm, just something's going to happen, and I'm going to be this. Yeah, this got it together adult with, you know, everything in your life is, is smooth and well organised. And no, that's not how it happens at all. You're the same person, just with more stress and responsibilities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember I remember um, one day when I was younger, I can't remember if it was my uncle or my old man or someone, and they were like, oh, yeah, it won't be too long, Johnny, and then you'll have this great career and you'll have a convertible and a hot chick next to you. And I was just like, in my head, I was thinking, that doesn't sound that good. I mean, the, part of it sounds quite good, but it doesn't really sound like me. 
<laughs> you know, but it was like that was in the 80s. That was an idealistic uh, look at success, I suppose, and what people were hinging. Yeah, and I think, you know, as an adult talking to a younger person, you tend to project on them, you know, what your ideal life is. And yeah, yeah. And, and not just young people either. You know, people, people are very good at projecting what they feel and believe on how they think other people should follow the same ideas. It's, this is very true. Now, um, which ended up becoming more successful for you in Tasmania? Was it the rugby or uni? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know if there was a contest between the two. I certainly enjoyed my rugby career, played, you know, many, many games over many, many seasons. And, and you know, it's a community, the rugby sort of uh, life. Um but, you know, saying that, I've been retired since I was sort of 30, 31. Uh, I'd love to play and get the boots on, but <clears throat> not with this body. <laughs> I'm an old man now. It's a bit banged up. Yeah, it's a bit banged up. The knees and the fingers and the, all the others. But, yeah, I, I still enjoy going to a few games every season. Yeah. Yeah. And if I had the time, I would love to either, you know, coach or maybe referee or something. I think that would be a nice way to still stay in touch. And, and so when you finished uni, did you leave Tassie or did you stay down there a bit longer? Uh, no, I left. So I graduated sort of in halfway through 99. I think I stuck it out for a few months after mid-semester, mid-year. <clears throat> then I went up in Melbourne for a year or two and then uh, I found myself with a ticket to London doing the expat Aussie working, living in London with a bunch of mates which I did for about almost three years. What were you doing over there? Uh, just office work. So I was like shuffling papers and basically doing emails out of agency stuff. I worked for a while for the British government um, in the, I guess, the education sector, helping do qualification assessments. Then I did some events stuff like... Waitress, wait, waitering, well, not waitressing. <laughs> <laughs> waiting, I think was the term yeah. I was looking for. <laughs> waiting and uh, yeah, rigging on, you know, uh, setting up stages and, and lights and cables and stuff for big events. Uh, but basically I was, I was doing anything for a few months, then I'd travel and I lived in this big old share house in uh, West London with a bunch of mates. All Aussies, so it was a, as you can imagine. Shenanigans. Yeah, I, I think you know the, 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 the formula there. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Lots of, um, lots of just talking about careers and uh, trying to excel. Yeah, mm. quite the opposite. Um, <laughs> and, well, that would have been good. Yeah, yeah, and it was great. I loved London. Uh, I still love it. It's a great city. I think it's one of the best cities in the world. Do you really? Yeah. You know I've never been. No? Oh, Okay. I've been to a lot of places, but for some reason I always think it's a bigger cold in Melbourne so and no waves, so, oh, so steer clear. Oh, you're right about both of those things. I mean, what's your favourite city? Like, Which one has sort of impacted on you a lot? Well, honestly, I, I, I'm not a city person. Mm. I struggle in cities. I like. I went to. I, I enjoyed walking around Paris, mm. you know, uh, going to the parks and uh, cemeteries and drinking coffees and nice little foodie places. But like most cities, I don't know, I, get, I tap out. I love L.A., Mm. but there's waves there mm. not very good ones but you can still surf it's pretty I like that it's so it's warm mm-hmm. uh, and it's um, I think LA gets a bad rap like I, I've, I've yeah. only been there once but I was only for basically 48 hours 
But uh, everyone's like, oh, you know, it's so awful and LAX is just a nightmare and, you know, the streets are just, you know, infested with crime and poverty. And, but, you know, I loved it. You know, I got there, I went to a hotel in Venice. Everyone was super chilled and Californian, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, you can't shock a Californian. <laughs> you know, they've fucking seen it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a bit. Honestly, and I love that. And to live there because it's so... Um, you know, there's everyone from everywhere. It's such a multinational, multi just melting pot of everything. Everyone's super open-minded. Mm. Well, it's the same with London, you know. Right. Such I'm a melting sure. pot. Yeah. But, you know, obviously not as warm, the waves as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. No, everybody loves London and it does. I, I probably should go and have a look. Yeah, well, I mean, let's see how we go in a few months when Brexit has hit. And I'm sure London will still be a great place, but... Uh. The whole situation with the UK and Europe is, is really complicated and probably one that we shouldn't get onto into this podcast. Okay, well, I was about to ask you about it, but I'll maybe I'll steer away. Um, okay, so you lived in London, then then, then, then when was the next step? Uh, next step, I think, was moving back to Papua New Guinea in around 2003, or late three, and um, I sort of just went there because I didn't really know what else I was going to do. I didn't really want to live in Melbourne. I spent a bit of time in Melbourne after uni and uh, it's a great city, but uh, I was just like, well, you know, this doesn't really feel like my home. Uh, maybe I'll just take some time in PNG and and sort of work out what I'm doing there. So I wound up um, working at an oil refinery. So doing construction and uh, sort of mechanical work. Offshore, onshore? Onshore. Yeah. So it was called the Napa Napa Oil Refinery. It's still there now. It was Papua New Guinea's first oil refinery. So it gave PNG the capacity to refine crude products into petrol, diesel, you know, kerosene, this sort of thing. Uh, It's, uh, yeah, it was a real, uh, I guess, nation-building exercise in a way. And certainly taught me a lot uh, working there, a lot of stuff about the energy sector and, and engineering and, and development and, and all sorts of stuff. It was, it was an eye-opening experience. And in, in, in did you, how long did you work for them? Oh, yeah, probably I was a contractor there, so I wasn't working directly for the uh, refinery, but it uh, would have been over two, three, maybe three years, yeah, I think, yeah. At least three years, uh, because uh, sort of by 2006, I, I mean we, we were still working for the same oil company, but we now then focused more on the, so we were doing construction, right? So we initially started off working on the refinery itself. So Does that mean if you're saying construction, is that dropping the pins into the earth, or is that like building the infrastructure around it? Uh, building the infrastructure. So we were involved in building parts of the refinery. Yeah. Uh, sort of putting in the right machinery and the equipment that they needed. Um, and then sort of once that it all finished and the refineries up and running, then we were doing some work on expanding their admin and their office centres, so doing, building stuff there. And did that two years, did that, did that kick you into your next job or did you go and do something completely different again? No, it, um, it was kind of progress from that. So I stayed in the energy sector and started to work at uh, petrol stations. So we were 
refurbishing old petrol stations that needed new pumps, they needed new uh, tanks for the for their fuel. Is this riding, all riding off the back of the oil, uh, the, the the oil rig that you, the first oil rig? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I, it was off the back of just working in that sector. You okay. Know? So you're working with companies and on projects and doing things that are all <clears throat> kind of part of the same industry. So. I mean, you go do what you know, I think, so, and, and, and you have the context already because you've already been talking to these guys and their clients and their customers and their suppliers, so everyone you know, kind of knows each other. And then people hear, oh, you can do this or that. Can you come over here and do it for me on this slightly different project? Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, now... You know how you, my, you sparked back into my brain was through a conversation with Eddie Jeffries. Jeffer, yeah. And um, and is there any truth to uh, tell me you were trying to keep the Chinese out of Port Moresby? Not as in just like keep the Chinese out, but they were trying to come in and do what? Oh, look, I... I have nothing against Chinese. No, no, I'm not saying as Chinese, <laughs> as a Chinese, like as a, as a racial thing, but in a business sense. Okay, so, I mean, I've, I don't know if that's quite the most accurate way to describe of sort of where I'm at or what I've been doing. Um, I think uh, where, I guess where your question's coming from is, is with the coal stuff. Right? So, yes, but is the chi- yeah, go Well, on. I mean, I, I, I'm not privy to the conversation that you and Jaffa had so it was pretty simple okay yeah um basically i've been working to try and make png better more environmentally sound cleaner um to help address some of the economic and social health and environmental issues of uh related to climate and energy use so okay let's back this up yeah so you went from doing infrastructure and doing service stations to now something that's completely like on a different level. Well, I mean, let me let me tell you about my journey. So yes. I was I was working sort of in the oil sector yeah. in upstream, well, all in downstream. So refineries, uh, service stations, fuel depots, they're all downstream. So below the refinery. This is what the refinery puts out and they yeah. distribute it, yep. whereas upstream is your, your mines and your, your rigs and stuff. Um, so I went from that, and from being involved in that, I actually got quite interested in the peak oil movement, which this is like the early mid noughties um, peak peak oil. So peak oil was a real concern at the time that uh, <clears throat> we would get to the point where we couldn't increase oil production, and this was a concern. Peak oil, yeah. yeah. This was a concern because the whole global economy did and to an extent still does run on on liquid fuels, liquid hydrocarbons. So oh, oh, hold on. The whole are you saying that like the dollars backed by petro and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, or, I mean that's yeah. part of it. Yeah. You know, the, okay. the US dollar is backed by uh, the oil price or that there is that, that relationship. Um, but also, you know, global transport links rely on on, on liquid fuels and petrochemical industry uh you know petrochemical based fertilizers grow our food harvest our food transport it to us um so you know either way you look at it it was a real concern that you know maybe uh we would not have this uh growing resource of oil so a lot of people looking into it i kind of got 
uh, I wouldn't say involved in it, but it certainly was really interesting to me and I started to follow it quite closely and looking into the uh, possible outcomes. And, and that got me interested in tracking the price of oil um, and seeing how the different price as oil rose and fell would have other social and economic effects. Now, peak oil, I think, was a legitimate cause uh, for concern at the time, but it's since been found out that uh, uh, these Americans came up with this um, really interesting new way of uh, mining for oil called fracking. (coughs) And basically, the invention of fracking or fracturing I think uh, is a longer term. Is, uh, is this like fracturing the earth? Yeah, so they blow up the uh, the earth. I think with some, they, I guess they stick some dynamite or something down there, and it breaks up the the solid earth underneath into all this massive fractured pieces of stone or whatever, and that helps uh, them tap into the gas and the oil that's under there and makes it easier to extract. So uh, this was uh, a relatively new invention in the early noughties, but it, it really expanded hugely and it turned the Americans from being an oil importer to a net oil exporter, which they are now, um, by uh, expanding their mostly in North Dakota and parts of Texas as well that really increased their oil production. Yeah, I didn't know this until yesterday, in fact, because uh, I thought they were still reliant on the Middle East and I thought that's why they were so meddling in the Middle East. Um, but mm, no, my mate from California just says, no, no, America is self-sustainable at the moment. On Yeah, well, it's all connected. I mean, and I think America is fairly self-sustainable, though they do still import certain products that they don't make onshore. But, uh, you know, if they really pushed, I'm sure they could build the right facilities that could make it. But I mean, I mean, the global oil price is all interconnected anyway. So if there was a big uh, disaster in the Middle East, <laughs> you know, touch wood, um, it would impact the global oil price, which would what, impact, you mean like a war? Well, potentially. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It's anything that drives up the global price is going to affect the American price as well. So I think that's why you find the the American. So okay. So right now, diesel in Australia is one forty-seven ish. Mm-hmm. So we're paid on the way up. If there's a war in the Middle East, what are the possible outcomes of that? What are you, what are so you saying? When, um, when they had the was it the rocket and the drone attack on the Saudi Arabian? Just the other day. It was like a month or two. No, no, this was a couple of months ago. This is oh, like on the tanker. No, it was like uh, it was the Yemeni Houthi. Well, it was alleged that the Yemeni Houthi rebels attacked the biggest oil refinery factory in Saudi Arabia, <clears throat> and they took it offline for a week or two. Anyway, they hit it with drones and with rockets. Oh uh, yeah, I think I do yeah. remember something about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was the I want to say it's the Al Gawa refinery, but I think that's the oil field. Either way, you know, it's the biggest oil refinery in the world um, and puts out, you know, millions of barrels every day. The biggest one in the world. I think so, yeah. yeah. And uh, anyway, the day after these attacks, the oil price jumped like 15%. So, you know, it's 15% more to pe- fill your car, 15% more on your plane ticket uh, and, you know, all the rest of the, the economic implications from that. So, yeah, in short, war is very bad. Um, it would drive the oil price up almost inevitably, uh, and then we would see all sorts of flow-on consequences from that. 
So you were researching the the trends of oil mm-hmm. uh, out of interest of yeah. what was happening in P and G. Yeah. And what was your uh, what 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 was your synopsis? Well, my I was sort of researching energy in general, and you know when I was at high school. Um, I remember, you know, hearing, I think it was in year eight science, uh, our science teacher, Miss Danker, explaining to us that, uh, yeah, there's this thing called climate change and the earth is is warming up and it's, you know, it's actually pretty bad news and it's going to really, you know, impact us, you know, in generations to come, maybe in hundreds of years, maybe sooner or longer. Uh, But it's okay because we're going to transition to renewable energy we're going to replace oil and coal and gas with uh, wind and solar and all this, you know, great technology, and that's going to fix the problem. So I was like, well, wow, just climate change sounds pretty bad, but it's good that we've, you know, got these technologies up our sleeves that's going to fix it. And then, you know, sort of 10 or 12 years later, here I was working on this oil refinery, and and I could see, you know, how much uh, money and effort and logistics and organizations was going into the oil sector like it was it was mega bucks like huge sums nothing was too expensive or too difficult to to to, to fix the any problem had a you know solution or, or a workaround and it was just like these guys were really serious about expanding their industry and i was like well you know that's pretty good but where is the uh where's the solution that we were promised you know a decade ago for climate change where where's the wind and the solar that's meant to push these guys out and make them redundant because the from what i've seen they are not becoming redundant they are becoming bigger and more powerful and more ingrained in everything we do so that made me ask some really serious questions like okay you know when i was on the outside it was easy for me to hear and understand that when someone tell me, yeah, they're going to fix it, they're, there's going to be solar, there's going to be wind, everyone will be clean and green in the future. <clears throat> but working in the industry, it was clear that, that that wasn't happening. So I decided to really look more into it, uh, try and understand some of the stuff that was going on with the renewable sector, uh, what the pros and cons were, what, what some of the economics were, sort of implications of that were. Uh, and eventually that wound up with me enrolling in a uh, master's degree here in Melbourne at RMIT to do sustainable energy. Now, I didn't have an engineering uh, uh, undergraduate degree. I wasn't a Bachelor of Engineering, so I uh, had to sort of plead my way onto the course by telling them about all of the uh, you know, work I'd done on oil refineries and working in the energy sector and some of the extracurricular stuff I'd done on, on tracking energy prices and, and looking into that side of things. And they said, yeah, it's fine, you know, you, you can enrol, but you have to do extra courses in maths and physics. Um, you won't get credit for them, so it'll be off your own bat, but they're important for you to understand some of the stuff that we'll be studying in the course. And, yeah, that suited me fine. I left Papua New Guinea, I think this is in 2007, semester one, and I moved here to Melbourne and... Uh, Got cracking on the uh, Master of Engineering. Awesome. Yeah. And how many? The, how, how was the Masters? Is that five years or something? No, it's a year and a half full time, which okay. which I did. I so I took a sabbatical for a year in '07, and I worked full time. In the sabbatical. Uh yeah, so studied a study sabbatical. Okay. So I, I left work, came to Melbourne, and um, 
And yeah, I studied uh, flat out all this. I, I was doing overload. I think I was doing five subjects a semester, maybe, um, <clears throat> on all different aspects of renewable energy. And didn't see much daylight. Well, actually, it's the opposite. Most of the courses were at night. So, oh wow! So yeah, I would kind of study and you know do my stuff in the daytime, and then uh, you would have like lectures from six till eight thirty or something, and then. Um, a shorter sort of workshop group thing after that for half an hour or so. And so I was doing that four or five nights a week and, and maybe one or two daylight courses as well. And so when you went in to do the masters, in, you, did you have a, a trajectory in mind? Like, okay, I'm going to go in and clock, clock this, get the masters and then get into... Yeah, look, I knew Papua New Guinea had serious energy issues and it still does and you know there is a real demand for electrification for people to be able to access new energy sources and and I guess I I went in with the idea that you know this would be a marketplace for my skills um and sort of early in the degree I sort of was you know looking at all the different pros and cons of the uh the the energy systems we were studying and so you know we're looking at wind power biomass solar um hydro uh geothermal uh fusion power um ocean thermal uh all bunch of things but the two things that stood out to me was uh solar power and wind power now this was 07 so solar was still quite expensive but wind was incredibly cheap and i was like well you know, wind has this amazing potential. Uh, uh, I think, you know, this is definitely an industry I could get behind and, and, and support. And and so I kind of angled my studies and my interests around wind power and becoming more involved and, uh, uh, I guess, an expert in that area and wound up doing my, my major course thesis on, on a wind power project. Um, but I, what I didn't anticipate was the well, two things: the this, the political and social opposition to wind power uh, was stronger and more well organised than I understood, and this uh, really turned out to be a pretty serious obstacle for wind power in Australia or PNG or both. Oh, in Australia, yeah, in Australia and around the world. Um, and why? Why is why is such kickback? Well, I think um, obviously the uh, vested interest in the energy sector didn't was not they were not interested in seeing a new technology come in and potentially present cheaper energy when they'd spent billions, trillions, you know, buying oil exploration leases and building refineries and and doing all these things. So uh, if they didn't have a stake in it, they were probably going to oppose it no matter what it was. And um, there's also, uh, in terms of the opposition to wind power, you know, they are big, big structures. They're the size of a skyscraper, you know, bigger than the Eiffel Tower. Um, so there's aesthetic concerns from local communities, which, I mean, I, I understand. Uh, I personally think wind turbines look great and I don't really care how they sound, but I don't live near one, so maybe I'm not the best person to, to ask, but... I think there were some genuine concerns in, in communities near wind turbines and these were exploited by sort of the media and the, the fossil f and the mining sort of sector. Uh, so uh, these combined to really put the brakes on wind power and um, it's, it c didn't expand quite as well as it could. And at the same time, solar was very expensive. I think it was, we're talking seven, 
$8 per watt to install it. And that changed considerably since 07 to today, or you know, even to sort of, I guess, around about two or three years ago, solar became more or less the cheapest energy source in the world. That's mainly off the back of China's work, doing, uh, building immense factories that would pump out solar panels just at really cheap rates. And a lot of work that was done in Germany as well. Germany got very early onto renewables and onto solar, and they started to develop all these business models and, and technical uh, training and strategy and technical capacity to make it cheaper to install solar. So between sort of the work done in China on the production and the, the stuff that the Germans perfected with uh, the implementation, solar sort of really fell off a cliff price-wise. And, and it was, uh, I think, you know, the panels were, what did I say, maybe 5 or $6 a decade or longer ago, you can get the same panels now for uh, not six dollars per watt, but like thirty cents per watt. Wow! Yeah, fucking yeah, it's <laughs> that's it's fall off a cliff. It really has. It really has, and a lot of people don't really understand that. But it's just so much cheaper now than it was even two years ago. Huh? So since you 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 graduated and you felt the kickback and against wind. Did this take you back to PNG? Yeah, so I returned to PNG. Um, I hadn't finished my course at that time. I, I still had two subjects to go, but I mean, like maths and physics. <laughs> no, it was uh, risk analysis, and um, I forget the other one. Something to do with advanced energy systems or something. Um, but I, I was I was a little bit burnt out, and I was like, okay, well, I'd been doing an overload. <clears throat> you know, 50% more subjects than most people do for, you know, I think uh, 18 months maybe um, to try and squeeze this course in. I was like, okay, I need a break. I'm going to go back to Papua New Guinea. And I just kind of went back to doing kind of similar stuff that I had been doing before. But now I was actively looking for better solutions as well. So I guess it gave me the tools that I needed for that. And uh, I, I, I more or less back into doing similar work sort of working with engines and fuel systems and, uh, yeah, that sort of uh, mechanical engineering stuff. Uh, and I did that for two or three years and then it was a bunch of years later, I think maybe 2011 or 2012, that I was like, well, shit, I, I need to pick up on this this course that I started. And then I went back to uni, uh, re-enrolled in this uh, the two subjects I needed and uh, at that time, I actually got called up for jury duty with the um, magistrates. I think yeah, the magistrates court here in, in Melbourne to do a a sit on the jury of a criminal case. So I was then in court all day and studying at night, uh, which worked out pretty well because as a juror, uh, you know, eighty or ninety percent of the time is just waiting for the court. So you stick stuck in the jury room. Um, and the court, they're doing the things or whatever inside, and then when it's time to present evidence, then they will you out, you listen to the evidence, then you go back in, and then they, again, argue about what you just heard. So I, long story short, I had a lot of spare time in this jury room, so I was just studying there and, and doing as much as I can, and then... Was one, it a big court case? Uh, I doubt you would have heard of it. It was a couple of bikies rolled a house down in uh, Frankston or somewhere, I think. 
that was it? I mean, there was a serious assault. Uh, a man was uh, permanently crippled. Oh my god! Yeah. Really? Yeah. Were they, were they? It was drug related. Yeah. So, oh god, I don't know what I can talk about here because I think I can talk about what was uh, presented in the um, in the court case. So I'm all right there. I just can't talk about the jury deliberations. So what happened was um, there's this guy who was a drug dealer and he lived at home with his parents, uh, an old Italian family. And they were had a flower farm or a tomato farm or something. <clears throat> but the kid, he was like 18 or 20. He was a dealer dealing, you know, whatever. And uh, a couple of bikies came to the house to roll him, take his stash and the money, or Both. allegedly. Yeah. And uh, he wasn't there. They got into an altercation with the father and the father was then hit in the head with a hammer. Oh, my fucking God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was pretty bad. I mean, he... He'd come to the trial and he was, you know, this guy was messed up. Like, he was lucky to live, I guess. Uh, but he like, pretty much caved his skull in. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, yes, uh, the assailants fled and... Uh, hey, get the drugs and cash? I don't think so because the, the sun wasn't there. So they never, I mean, unless they tore the place apart. And I don't think they were there long enough for that. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay, yeah, so you're yeah. doing jury duty. A little diversion. <laughs> <laughs> jury duty and studying in between hearing evidence and finishing the two subjects. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, and then that was uh, most of that year. And then I, after that, I returned to Papua New Guinea. And I was still kind of doing more of the same, um, just kind of engineering stuff in the fuel and energy sector. Uh, but then I was had a great mate and he was kind of interested in the same stuff as I had been with energy and, and solar and wind but never had the opportunity to to do anything about it himself to study or, 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 or follow it up like I had and as you do we were just sitting on his balcony you know every weekend and we talk about this talk about that and we eventually were like well, you know why don't we do something like why don't we try and launch a solar product or a business or a service and uh, we think our first project was to build a solar refrigerator out of some panels just a tiny little bar fridge that we hooked up to batteries and a and a couple of so it's pretty functional yeah it was functional and it was we keep your beer cold yeah we built it on his veranda um yeah and then we realized okay this isn't so hard like actually solar building solar stuff is pretty simple it's just a panel and some batteries and and that sort of thing. So we decided to start our own business. Uh, it's called Astra Solar Limited, uh, Papua New Guinea company, and I'm 50-50 owner with my friend Mark. And since we started off on his balcony just talking shit and drinking beers, now we have grown that business to today where we're doing projects, like large-scale projects in the realms of uh, you know, five, six figures, um, yeah, big, big, big stuff, yeah. Like for so factories? Look, like yeah, looking for factories, supermarkets, shopping centres, uh, kind of larger commercial and industrial stuff, and we're doing a little bit of work in utilities as well. So we are working, helping to develop a, an 11 megawatt 
project, which is which is like it's large. Yeah, eleven megawatts is a lot. <clears throat> Power a whole town almost. Um, wow. Well, a small town, maybe in Papua New Guinea, maybe not an Australian town. What does it take to run a house? So, I reckon, what in terms of solar, and just terms of the electricity that it needs. Well, like, let's start with electricity. Yeah. So, your typical house can be using about two kilowatts of electricity a lot of the time. A day. No. So, and this, okay, maybe a brief diversion here into energy uh, nomenclature. How do you describe energy? You have two ways to do it, kilowatts or megawatts and kilowatt hours or megawatt hours. And how do I put this? The kilowatt, I think, is if this was a car, if the, to use a car analogy, the kilowatt would be the size of your engine and the kilowatt hour would be the size of your fuel tank. So kilowatts is power, kilowatt hours is energy. Um, so if my house here is a... Oh, yeah, it's a V8. Oh, yeah, okay, let's call it... No, I'm it, joking. Yeah, it's on, probably yeah. more like a, a four-cylinder. But yeah. let's say I'm running the lights, the fridge is on, um, there was a fan on before. You add all of that up, it's not a big house and I'm here by myself. So that's maybe one kilowatt of load now if i sit through the hour without touching anything and that constant load is one kilowatt then that's one kilowatt hour that i've consumed if i do that for 24 hours straight then obviously that's 24 kilowatt hours and that is what i'm going to be billed by by the utility the electric company they're going to charge me 20 cents or 30 cents or whatever it is per kilowatt hour okay so now can i just cut you off and say so you we're working on a 24 kilowatt hour no for per for the day yep yep how many solar panels to yeah match that good question so um if i'm using one kilowatt per hour then i will need uh at least one kilowatt of solar panels but probably more because there's going to be losses um it might be a bit shady or there might be uh, some thermal losses when, the, when solar panels get hot, they become less efficient. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's quite a significant problem. It's like they lose, you know, 1% for every degree or two that they go up. So the myth of, like, just chuck them in the desert? Oh, it'd still work. It'd still work. It just wouldn't be as effective. Like, well, I mean, it, it would be effective, but, I mean... The ideal situation for solar is a very bright, very cold day with direct sunshine. So you don't want the panels oh. getting really hot. Okay. I mean, but inevitably they do. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so what you find these days is a lot of people are going for these floating solar farms where they stick a bunch of panels on, on floats and they put them in a pond and then the the thermal mass of the water helps keep the, the whole system cooler oh. than it would be. And the panels also um, prevent evaporation from the pond as well, so you get a, a, wow. a twofer. Uh, but I, I digress a bit. What, what, where, where were no, we going no I was just saying, so how many panels would it take to do the 24? Right. So, yeah, you'd want to, um, let's say, weigh me one and a half panels to power the house. Uh, and then let's say we've got eight hours of sunlight and then you've got 16 hours where you've got no sunlight and... I'm assuming we want to run that off solar as well, so we need to stick that in a battery. Mm. Mm. So you've got the panels to run your house for eight hours, and then you've got 
twice as many panels again for those 16 hours where you have to use stored battery power. But because of the uh, inefficiencies of conversion, you're putting the panels into the battery and then taking it from the battery back into your house, mm. you're going to lose at least 20% there as well. Mm-hmm. So you need to scale it another 20% larger. Mm. So for whatever your average power usage is, you want a system that's probably three or four times larger than that, plus the batteries. And then that would, I guess, take you almost completely off-grid. And um, obviously, you know, with technology moving the way it is, it's just getting better and better. It is. It's getting a lot better and it's getting a lot cheaper. So I think the main difference in movement has been the price. Uh, The solar panels we have today are better than the ones we had 10 or 15 years ago, but they're not a completely new design. It's like it's pretty well understood and well engineered. Um, and really the, the, the big differences we're seeing now is they're just getting better at making them so they can do them cheaper. Uh, and yeah, and also the ability to put them out, the business models they're using, um, the, the, the capacity to you know, the technical ability to put it on your roof and, and make it work for you at different times of day. This is all changing a lot as well. So some of the most interesting things are not happening with the technology but with the business models around it. Now, you're uh, on an NGO. Is this correct? I am on a lot of NGOs, actually. Are I, you? Yeah, I do, do quite a bit of energy and climate stuff around uh, the Pacific region. Um, so yeah, some of it more, I'm more involved in than others. Uh, some of it, uh, is like a hobby and some of it like is like almost like a proper job. So yeah. Which one's the most, the big one, the proper job one? Uh, well, I've just been invited to join, um, the advisory board for the United Nations Climate and Technology Center. So this is, uh, it's called the Climate Technology Center and Network, CTCN. It's based in Copenhagen in Denmark. and uh, That's quite an honour. Well, I've been nominated and I'll be very honoured if uh, I'm accepted. So it's in the process at the moment and I'm, I'm fingers crossed that, yeah. I mean, it's nice to just be nominated and be recognised. Um, and, you know, hopefully if all goes well, touch wood, that uh, I will be in that advisory board uh, for the next year or two. Um yeah, so CTCN, as it's known, is uh, the, yeah, the Climate Technology Centre and Network. And they have two, I mean, this is from my yet-to-join understanding, but I've had already some talks with the, the other board members and, and the, the, the centre. My understanding is they have two main roles. The first one is they are a, um, a technology advisor to member states of the United Nations. So when a country wants to develop a or wants to to roll out a new solar or or a new technology climate or energy technology um, then the ctcn can help them facilitate that so say you have you know a solar farm in australia and you decide that you want to also put up that same type of solar farm in papua new guinea using the same panels and maybe the same technology. Sorry to cut you off. There must be a lot going on because I met some backpackers the other day who were looking for jobs on solar farms. Mm. Uh, yeah, there is definitely. There's heaps going on. And um, in Australia, that's it's almost maxed out, to be honest. Like, the grid cannot handle what the, uh, the farms are, uh, all this extra building. Um, <clears throat> 
Yeah, but what the CTCN will do is was help help transplant technology, technology transfer organisation, help te- transfer technology from a developed country into a developing country. So what works in Australia or Denmark or USA, can we make that work in Papua New Guinea or China or Africa? Like what are the obstacles and how do we solve them? CTCN will help facilitate that and remove those obstacles. And the other part of what the CTCN does is, is every year we write a report uh, on the best climate technologies. What's working, uh, what are the pros and cons, what should we be looking at, what might work in a year or two. And that report goes to the UN General Assembly, I believe, or is it UNFCCC? Either way, it goes up the, UN, up the ladder in the UN to people above us and then they use that report to sort of determine what the UN and the member states are going to be focusing on in terms of technology. You're really at the forefront at a really at a, at a point in time where the, you know. Uh, look, yeah, I'm, I can only agree with you there. I think this is a really important uh, role that this uh, CTCN does, and, and I think we all understand that this is a, we, we seem to be at some sort of tipping point for climate-wise. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, uh, what do you think about Australia's decision to uh, allow Adani? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not a fan of it. I think you might have worked that out. Um, I think it's going to be a money loser for everyone involved. Um, There is some issues with whether the demand is going to exist for the coal that it's going to produce. Uh, Everyone seems to be saying, well, you know, India and Southeast Asia and Japan, they're all building coal plants, but a lot of the plants they're building are not being used at full capacity. And India in particular... And why, why is that? Uh, it's a bunch of different reasons. Um, uh, a lot of renewable energy, solar and wind, is coming in. Yeah. And it's able to operate cheaper than coal can, so it's stealing some of their market. And sometimes they don't have the right transmission and distribution. Isn't that great? Well, yeah, 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 I think so. Uh, um, but also there's infrastructure problems as well. They don't have the power lines across the country. So a lot of the coal, I think, was it said, was in the northeast, northwest of the country, and a lot of the main demand is in the southeast, and they just don't have enough power lines between those two places to really make it economic. But, yeah, no, it's, it's great that we're in a situation now, and we have been for a year or two, where solar and wind and renewables are cheaper than coal. I'm going to sound like a real dumbass here by saying this. What... What is is coal powering Melbourne right now? <coughs> yeah, yeah. So there's, I think it's Loyang or there's some some coal plants out in the Latrobe Valley. Definitely, yeah. Melbourne is powered by coal, and that's every city essentially is powered by coal. Hobart's not. Hobart's uh, not. Hobart's hydro. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Oh, this is that's good. Yeah. So Melbourne, yeah. Sydney, yeah. Uh, Brisbane, I would say yes. Uh, Adelaide, maybe less now. I believe they were shutting down some coal plants in Adelaide. But the what thing, was that thing that Tesla came in and helped with? Yeah, the um, the Elon Musk came Horn, in and the Horns, batteries. Hornsbrook or Horn, Hornley Power Reserve, I think it's called the big battery, the big Tesla battery, as they know. Elon Musk and uh, was it Mike Cannon Brooks? They had a bet that Musk couldn't deliver it in build it in was it 100 days or yeah, whatever it was yeah it was incredible because the government was going to take how long yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and he just came in and went bang yeah look i think elon's been amazing uh he is 
definitely one of the true visionaries of the 21st century and I think some of the, the stuff that he's laying down and the stuff he's already done is, is really going to shape the next 100, maybe longer, 100 years or centuries. Um, I had a closing thought and it's just evaded me. Um, he, he is fantastic though and uh, it, 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 I feel like some of those things are too far advanced for some of the civil some the way things are sort of mm. you know what i mean because you've got such extremes of poverty mm. and then such swings of wealth and then the middle ground is higgledy piggledy mm. and i think that we need to bring the close the gap on poverty and to get a lot of these great ideas across the board for them to be utilised as a whole society. Do you, do you think that is any value to that? Yeah, for sure. And look, it's like that, that William Gibson quote, that the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. And I think the same, you can say the same for climate change and for you know modern technology. Uh, and this goes back to what CTCN does as well, that uh, you know th- there is the technology out there, we have the answers, we have the solutions to all of these problems, but it's just a matter of... Uh, the management and the, the logistics of, of rolling them out into different places in different cultures. Christian Loberger, hour and 13 minutes. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sounds productive. I hope we learn something. I think it's been a wonderful chat. I've really enjoyed it. Great. Well, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, yeah, we connected again. Yeah, me too. Mm. Thanks, Lobes. All right, John. Cheers. Well, there you have it. There was my chat with Christian Loberger. Um, Astra Solar, that was the name of his solar company. Uh, yep, check out his website. Uh, it's really good stuff. Clean living, clean power uh, is the way forward. Um, so wherever you are on this spinning ball, I hope you're having a nice day, night, life. Um, and until next time, be good. Try not to be too much of an asshole in traffic. It's really, tr- it's really tough. But um, you know, fucking, I tell you, the less of a rush I'm in with everything, everything's easier. I don't know. It's working for me. I wrestle with it, but just uh, the more I can just give myself a little bit more leeway, a little bit more time, and say that you know I'm not in such a rush. I find myself rushing even to get the fucking dishes done. It's like, dude, just slow it down. It's going to happen whether I'm really going at it or not going at it. Like, it's just going to happen. And uh, anyway, I don't know why I'm saying this shit. I hope you're smiling. Take it easy till next time. Adios.